0: Hello. Thank you for tuning in to our Empire Lecture Series podcast. We hope this podcast finds you well, whether you're driving to work, between cases, or adding some education to your workout. Remember that all of these lectures are also available on our website and YouTube channel. And if you like what you hear, please rate us five stars and subscribe. Happy listening.
1: Let's give you a quick introduction. Dr. Fierstein joins us from Lenox Hill Hospital where he is the residency program director and a urologic oncologist. Uh, Dr. Fierstein did his uh, fellowship training at Memorial Sloan Kettering here in New York and um, is gonna be talking to us about surveillance imaging for RCC. Um, Dr. Fierstein, before we get started with your presentation, I was hoping you could just take a couple minutes and tell us a little bit about your career pathway and how you decided uh, on a career in urologic oncology.
0: Sure. Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, I could start in medical school. You know, my first experience was really in gynonc and I just really loved laparoscopic surgery and, and continuity. Um, but I really uh, had a lot of mentors in urology. Uh, shortly after that, and really uh, loved urology. Really, and wanted to be a surgical oncologist, but focusing on uh, other things like laparoscopic surgery and, and those things. Um, and, uh, I trained in Albany, uh, but I'm from the, New- I'm from the New York area. I wanted to come back to New York. Um, and, uh, and I've stayed in New York, um, you know, Lenox Hill is obviously a small program. And when I joined there, there was only a few faculty and it was really an opportunity to, um, grow very early on, uh, in my career. And so, uh, you know, important things that you should look at as you're sort of uh, graduating and things are, um, you want to make sure that there's, uh, you know, good mentorship, uh, wherever you're joining, um, and certainly opportunities for growth. Um, and so uh, you, you want to, uh, you know, look at those sorts of things. Um, and obviously, you want to be happy where you live and love New York City. Um, and uh, you want to be close to friends and family. You took it for granted for so long. Um, and so you want to have, you know, that support system there.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think that applies to looking for your first job, looking for a fellowship position, residency position, uh, everything uh, during this during this career in medicine pathway. So thanks so much for sharing that. Um, As the program director of Lenox Hill, I'm sure you have a lot of insight into the the you know next cycle of uh, urology match application process. We've been uh, actually having kind of a gradual shift in this series, whereas it started as all for the residents during COVID when everything was shut down. Now over the last couple of weeks, as everything's been opening up, we've getting, been getting more and more medical students actually joining um, this series. So I'm sure there's some medical students on the call. So um, uh, we just had a great uh, talk from Julia Finkelstein about telemedicine, and we're talking about kind of tele-interviewing. Um, I saw that um, the... Lenox Hill chairman posted a video online just the other day about um, virtual sub eyes. Um, what's, the, what's the latest about the um, you know, virtual visits, virtual sub eyes, virtual interview process on your end?
0: Yeah, so uh, obviously, you know, the AAMC has said that uh, you know, there's not going to be any um, real in life sub eyes, uh, uh, visiting sub You can do a sub eye at your home institution or if your institution doesn't have a urology program. Um, and, uh, obviously, these are really extraordinary times, and, and so uh, Dr. Richstone has been uh, leading urology, uh, but also been a key member in, in developing these, the idea of a virtual sub and you'll hear more about it. There's going to be a couple of <laughs> held by the SAU, and uh, the idea is, um, uh, you know, trying to immerse the student as much as possible into the program virtually, um there's going to be um there's there's sort of a um the pediatrics for one week um you know stones for one week female pelvic medicine sort of all built in um where there's going to be a lot of mentorship a lot of uh one-on-one with faculty as well as residents in didactic training as well as reviewing cases um we're going to try as best we can to, to immerse students into actual uh, real telemedicine visits um, that are supervised, obviously, by residents or faculty, as well as doing um, some uh, sort of standardized patient uh, live stream or review videos of surgeries uh, where you can do that, you know, or sort of review cases. Um, Obviously, students are going to be involved in all of the sort of grand rounds, all, all those sorts of conferences. Um, this is going to be a new experience for everybody. I think one thing that we've learned um, is uh, uh, how much um, we can, how much more we can do in terms of didactics um, uh, with students. I, I think uh, for many times, uh, visiting students were just sort of um, present. Uh, but we're not immersed in the program. And I think one of the things that uh, has been uh, born from from the development of this is is really trying to get students more immersed in the program, um, getting residents to do a lot of uh, teaching, um, as well as faculty. There's going to be a lot of uh, buy-in and a lot of uh, commitment from faculty at all these different programs, Um, spending a lot more time, I think, one-on-one with students than what we typically would have done exist uh, before, and that I think will uh, even when the visiting subwises return that will continue for years to come um, so it's uh it's exciting um, in terms of you know virtual interviews obviously we're all going to be doing that uh, and, and we sort of virtual uh, meetings um, But, uh, you know, we're gonna try our best. A lot of programs, as you know, are doing um, open houses and things to try to introduce their faculty and their programs as much as possible. Um, So, uh, you know, I... I, uh, Where, you know, your life was just sort of flipped upside down. and, And this is, you know, even, you know, even wilder than that. I mean, there was nothing like this, uh, you know, in, after nine eleven. 11 So, um, I can empathize with all the students. I hope, uh, you know, that, uh, you know, they'll push on if they're interested in urology. Uh, life's going to return back to normal, <coughs> but um, we'll all get through this together.
1: Yeah, wow. Congratulations on all those efforts. It's great to hear that you guys are kind of thinking outside the box and doing all this planning. Um, and I'm sure the students will appreciate it. And, you know, I'm, I'm sure it'll be reflected in, um, you know, matching top people this year. Um, I will uh, turn the podium over to you now so you can get go ahead and get started uh, with your topic. Oh, I do want to mention just one thing as well. You know, this is our last week of the Empire Urology uh, lecture series. So one of the things that we've been talking a lot about is, you know, using the the momentum that we've gained from this lecture series to um, you know help out with a lot of the things that you've been talking about so the the New York section uh, has made a commitment to um, you know continuing um, kind of the virtual education theme and we're gonna be trying to link up with programs in the New York section and trying to uh, you know spread the word about all the things that you've talked about virtual uh, open houses virtual sub eyes interviews just create a, a consolidated place to share all of that information uh, in the New York section. So let's stay in touch and we can uh, keep working Yeah, on well, so yeah really
0: congratulations great. to you and this program. Uh, this has been a great effort and uh, um, you know, this and other uh, programs like it um, are definitely a big part of the virtual sub-I. Um, and so I know that many faculty um, are going to use many of these uh, lectures uh, as part of their didactics.
1: Uh, Absolutely. Well, we couldn't have done it without you and your colleagues and all the other folks from the New York section and beyond. So thanks for joining us again, and uh, you can take
0: it away. All right. Uh, so what I wanted to talk about was um, surveillance imaging um, after treatment for renal cell carcinoma. You know there's some AUA guidelines uh, and NCCN guidelines, uh, but um, yeah, you know, I wanted you to think about this more. I think cerebrally, in terms of just follow up of cancer in general, um, and uh, why we do surveillance, um, and uh, what are what are the goals of surveillance? How do how do these surveillance uh, regimens come about? Um, I don't want you to forget that uh, you know this is twenty twenty and bad things happen. This is not my car, but um, uh, this was you know peak uh, pandemic in New York City. And I just happened to walk by this car with a tree that fell on it, and I just couldn't imagine this person walking out and finding this. Um, so I wanted you to think about um, recurrence in renal cell carcinoma in general um, for stages one through three, there's a 30% chance of relapse. And um, the question is, you know, how do we follow these people? Um, who do we follow for how long? Um, what tests do we order? Um, when do we stop following? And so I'm going to sort of break it down into two parts of this uh, talk. Uh, One is just sort of the basic tenets of uh, surveillance imaging. I want to focus on imaging as opposed to surveillance of um, um, chronic kidney disease and those things. Um, I want to talk about where where surveillance came from or the the, the original uh, papers, um, the development of guidelines and some thoughts and criticisms. And the most important thing, I think, is tying the surveillance to um, survival outcomes, which really is very minimal literature on this in, in, in most cancers. And then we'll talk about some special considerations, um, the positive surgical margins, um, how do we follow non-clear cell versus clear cell, um, and um, some general considerations about um, surveillance. And then finally, uh, just a brief mention about biomarkers in this area. So when you think about cancer surveillance, um, really the, the whole idea is picking up asymptomatic uh, relapses and the the real question is whether or not and does it matter if you detect a asymptomatic lung recurrence for example, um, at year one versus year two and is that tied to survival? And we just really don't have that evidence. Um, And I'll I'll try to sort of hash that out. Um, Obviously this is all based on risks and patterns of recurrence. Um, so it's not just uh, stage three versus stage one, but also where do people recur? <clears throat> and should we image the chest versus the abdomen uh, versus bone scans, for, for instance? Um, and then there's other things that we th- should think about in terms of um, surveillance imaging, including the detection of secondary cancers, other detrimental effects of treatment. Um, for instance, um, patients who been, had prior radiation, um, you know you understand that there 's uh, increased risk of secondary cancers, obviously, in the absence of clear level one evidence, we want uh, surveillance to be safe and cost effective and not too onerous on the patient. Um, so uh, getting imaging every two months is obviously a big burden to patients and overall, we should consider the patient 's overall benefit and i 'll talk a little bit about age cutoffs um, and uh, when do we stop surveillance. So in renal cell carcinoma, there have been a number of them that have come out um, to predict who's going to recur. Um, but most of these nomograms, uh, many of them are specific to clear cell carcinoma, and some of them have been updated for other histologies and, bi- and the use of biomarkers. Uh, but they, these really predict whether or not someone's going to recur. Um, we want to know when, uh, not just when uh, or if, but, but where are going to recur. So location really matters, um, and so in, in uh, renal cell carcinoma, of course, lung is the most common site of recurrence, and so obviously chest imaging is the key, um, and uh, it's also important to know that many of these are amenable to watch, um, and uh, there some been some trials on active surveillance in metastatic renal cell carcinoma, and there's also obviously evidence of a benefit of metastasectomy in some of these cases. Um, Some sites are going to be symptomatic. So it's about 20% of relapses are symptomatic. And so it's not so important to get bone scans or brain scans. These patients are going to present with symptoms. And so surveillance imaging is really not uh, the key there. Some sites also pretend a poor prognosis. Um, And so we want to, uh, you know, the key to surveillance imaging is obviously detecting an early recurrence that's going to be treatable. It's going to uh, affect a patient's survival. Also a key thing in RCC is uh, there's, it's notable for unusual metastases. There's uh, you a know, hundred different range recurrences in RCC and there it's, therefore it's important, not just obviously to order surveillance imaging, but obviously examine the patient. So this is a paper by uh, Suzanne Merrill at Penn State. So, um, um, you know, I wanna give her a shout out. She's um, uh, been a key player in, in this field uh, and written a lot of uh, important papers in this area this was a, a retrospective uh, paper that looked at asymptomatic versus symptomatic recurrences in renal cell carcinoma and basically what they found was that symptomatic recurrences had significantly worse uh, outcomes and and the conclusion was that earlier detection of uh, asymptomatic recurrence improves patient survival however if you if you look at you know these bottom two Um, rows of the asymptomatic versus uh, symptomatic, you can see there's a big difference in in where patients recurred. And as I said, some symptomatic recurrences are going to pretend a worse prognosis. And so I don't think this is a your detection equals uh, better survival. This is um, the um, UCLA integrated staging system using, uh, using this to uh, come up with really one of the first um, uh, guidelines, so to speak, of, of um, follow-up. And so, uh, as you can see, this was the first paper really to look at abdominal imaging. abdominal imaging. And you can see if you look at low risk patients, they're getting abdominal imaging every two years. Um, which is different than what we do, which is really about every year. Um, uh, another, another key point is a lot of CAT scans. Uh, you know, obviously we use chest X-ray and ultrasound in many burden of, of uh, CAT scans and radiation exposure, and I'll talk about that briefly. But this was one of the really the first papers, and this was a retrospective review of, of over uh, about 600 patients uh, where they came up with this. And before we really had guidelines, this was the basis for for follow-up. So before the uh, most recent AUA guidelines and NCCN guidelines, uh, uh, our group at uh, Sloan Kettering, when I was there, uh, looked at just the patterns of, and we saw a lot of of, uh, discrepancies in what people were doing. Um, And so if you just look at this uh, table of T1 patients, you see that uh, many of them were getting uh abdominal ct and mri scans um each year and basically ultrasounds for these patients in, as well in, in high risk patients very uh, a, a a large number of them, about a, about a third of them were getting uh, were not getting chest imaging and this was concerning um, again if you look at um, the radiation exposure to many of many of these patients Um, You see that, uh, for instance, in the land paper, um, a high, uh, very high uh, level of radiation exposure consideration um, when uh, coming up with surveillance protocols. So these were the most recent uh, AUA guidelines and you're probably familiar with these. um, Basically breaking down uh, low versus moderate to high risk patients by by stage. Um, And you can see that in low risk patients, um, really it's annual uh, abdominal imaging is an option. Chest imaging annually is recommended with chest X-rays. And in the moderate to high risk patients, those are the patients that really need um, CAT scans of the abdomen and CAT scans of the chest annually or six months. Again, no level one evidence for this. This is all based on expert opinion, or grade C evidence. Um, and then the AUA guidelines and the NCACN guidelines really don't make any uh, recommendation after five years. And we'll talk about follow-up uh, beyond three to five years um, and the importance of uh, continuing to follow these patients. These are the EAU guidelines. Again, this is now this is based on the UCLA stratification that I uh, showed in the LAM uh, study. And you can see it a lot less for instance, in low-risk patients, um, they're doing um, annual ultrasound and, and also using CAT scan at the one-year and the three-year uh, periods. And I'll show you why uh, CAT scans might be important at some, at some interval. Uh, and in the intermediate and high-risk, it's about a CT scan once a year. Um, importantly, after three years, both of these uh, in low and intermediate and high-risk are following patients every two years. And I'll explain why that's important. So we looked at a uh, follow-up of low-risk disease uh, at Sloan Kettering, this was a retrospective review. And this was really a, a granular review, chart review of over 1,400 patients. And you can see we um, uh, got a lot of uh, fellows and, uh, and students involved in this project. Basically, we excluded all imaging within three months of surgery. And then we excluded any imaging that wasn't obtained for surveillance of renal cell carcinoma specifically trying to eliminate any surveillance that might've been caught up with other other cancers or other reasons. Um, And uh, of the 1400 patients, only 21 patients relapsed. Um, And uh, we looked at, in the first three years, over 5,700 imaging tests were performed to detect these relapses. And only six of eight were treated. And so it's important to tie the relapses also with what happens clinically to these patients and how many of these relapses are actually treated and how many might actually affect survival. In all, uh, we found that a thousand imaging studies had to de- uh, were used to detect one clinically significant relapse, which we defined as a relapse that was tr- that was treated. Um, Igor Sorokin uh, had looked at the um, part partial ne- uh, follow up of partial nephrectomies in T1 disease, and a couple of important findings here. One was uh, that T1B obviously had a higher rate of of relapse than T1A, and and You know, this distinction between T1A and T1B is not used in any of the uh, surveillance guidelines. And the other thing to point out is that recurrences after three years did happen. And so if you look at the 36-month cutoff point, you see that relapses continue to recur. Um, Interestingly, there was no difference uh, for positive surgical margins. And I'll talk about the uh, evidence of that as well. This is the Mayo data. Um, Again, Suzanne Merrill was the uh, lead author on this. A retrospective review of over 3,500 patients treated at Mayo um, and they looked at the AUA and NCCN guidelines and, and a third of the occurrences were actually missed. Most of these were abdominal occurrences in low-risk patients and most of them uh, or many of these missed occurrences happened after three years. To capture 95% of the occurrences they would have to do with surveillance for over 14 years and the implications of this in terms of cost and burden to patients um, could be could be enormous. Uh, you're looking at five times the, the uh, cost for following patients so after three to five years. Uh, one other point of this is, you know, again, tying this to outcomes. And so, this, this uh, we did not, uh, they did not tie this paper, what actually happened to these patients clinically in terms of how many patients were treated or how they were treated um, and their survival outcomes. And so, we're still missing that piece of tying surveillance um, to survival. This is data from the uh, ASSURE trial. Um, uh, you know, this was a uh, adjuvant study of uh, sunitinib uh, versus serafinib versus placebo um, in high-risk patients, and this was uh, just hot off the presses here uh, in 2020, a novel classification of abdominal recurrences. and this is really um, highlighting the difference between ultrasound and CAT scan these different classification systems, um, you can see that there was no difference in, the t- in survival different for the type of recurrence, which is interesting. Some of these recurrences were um, soft tissue or vasculature um, versus uh, in the renal fossa. Interesting also, there's no difference by surgical technique That's important. Obviously, many of these uh, nephrectomies are being done laparoscopically these days. Many people are pushing the limits of partial nephrectomy for these patients and we see no difference in recurrence. Importantly, in high-risk patients, ultrasound will miss a lot, um, a lot of these types of local occurrences. So if you look at the types of recurrences um, vasculature versus adrenal or lymph node, ultrasound is gonna miss many of these. And so if you think back to the EAU guidelines um, of doing CAT scans every other year versus ultrasound, you can see where is where gonna miss a lot of uh, local occurrences. And so one question is, uh, you know, how long do we follow these patients? When do we stop? And we have to tie that into their um, overall comorbidity and their uh, age and survival. And so this is an interesting take. The young patients with no comorbidities, um, T2 disease, you have to follow these patients for over 20 years to, to detect many of their uh, recurrences. If you think about sicker patients, um, they're gonna really not gonna benefit from long-term surveillance. Um, Their chance of uh, mortality from comorbidities is much, much higher than their chance of recurrence. Again, if you look at um, the older patients, um, you're talking about maybe following these patients for six months to two years um, of surveillance. And so we uh, we can tie in their age and comorbidity Um, to their chance of recurrence and their and their benefit from recurrence. And this has not been been really elucidated in any of the guidelines. So is more better? um, This was a a paper from a European uh, multi-center study uh, where they really looked at, you know, the numbers, and they found no benefit of doing more Um, and you can see the survival curves and so um, it appears that, you know, to uh, confirm the EAU guidelines of basically once a year imaging. And I alluded to this earlier, but, you know, not all uh, recurrences are created equal. And there's a number of uh, uh, clinical instances where a metastatic uh, relapse um, can be watched. And so you, this was a, a phase two prospective study of following patients who relapsed. And you can see that that uh, up to uh, the median follow-up surveillance before treatment was almost 15 months. And so there's many instances where patients can can relapse and be left alone, and it may not be clinically significant. There is a stratification. Some ben- some patients will benefit from immediate treatment, whereas others uh, we can watch. And so that's sort of the the basic tenets, and uh, and and just to rehash that. You know, uh, using a risk-based approach uh, based on nomograms or uh, probability of recurrences and knowing where patients recur, um, that's how we detect, uh, hope to detect asymptomatic recurrences. It's very difficult to tie this to survival, you know, know, even at these um, large centers. And in the absence of strong evidence, we should minimize radiation and costs uh, while also making sure to capture most of the uh, relapses. Uh, one important point is that you don't stop following the young healthy patients uh, low risk um, are uh, have a high chance of a, a late re- or higher chance of a re- late relapse, and so really need to be followed uh, lifelong and they'll, and then although there's evidence of asymptomatic relapses um, equals better survival. Um, which is really the holy grail, and we really just don't have that um, uh, kind of data in most cancers. Um, uh, you know, the the, I mean, the most obvious exception is, of course, you know, PSA re- relapse and biochemical PSA relapse um, confers better survival, uh, but that's hard to prove in most cancers. I want to talk about just some special considerations. I mentioned positive surgical margins in the sorokin data. Um, had relapse, um, this was a, a large multi-center study of positive surgical margins and the risk of recurrence. And there, is, uh, there are some patients with a positive surgical margin who are going to have a higher risk of relapse. And those are really the high risk patients, the patients with T. And so if you have a patient with T1 disease and non-clear cell, um, as we saw in the Sorokin data with T1 disease, there's really no change in the risk of recurrence. And so um, the, other, the other and a local versus a distant recurrence. And so patients with positive surgical margins may have a higher risk of relapse in, in high risk cases, but they have the same uh, amount of local versus distant. Um, And so it's not clear that you have to treat the kidney uh, right away. Of P0, a completion nephrectomy in the positive surgical margin series, you know, retrospective looking look where they had a positive surgical margins and the surgeons went back and either did a repeat partial nephrectomy or a completion nephrectomy. No study has demonstrated immediate uh, repeat treatment prevents recurrence in in these cases. And recurrence is associated with other risk factors uh, that I just mentioned high-stage disease, and um, high-risk histology that we already use to guide surveillance. And so the bottom line is that, that we don't need to change our surveillance for positive surgical margins, and that's been hashed out in the guidelines. The AUA, NCC, and EAU, they really make no distinction about a positive surgical margin in doing more uh, surveillance. Another, And so I mentioned in the positive surgical margin uh, uh, papers that non-clear cell confers a better uh, uh, survival benefit um, in terms of relapse, and um, and that's been hashed out. That that you know, obviously, uh, chromophobes and papillaries are more indolent diseases, and we don't have to follow them as closely. Um, but important to note that in high risk patients, and again, this is uh, data from Assure, that high risk non-clear cell really has different patterns of recurrence, and so non-clear cell. High risk patients will more often relapse in the abdomen versus the chest. And I think that's an important consideration when you're following these patients. Just a quick mention about hereditary syndromes. Um, this is not really so much about surveillance at, after a treatment, but surveillance of these patients in general. And there's some guidance, and, and for the students and residents, um, obviously, this is a, a very testable table here, you should know about the associated genes and the renal manifestations about uh, the main hereditary renal cell carcinoma syndromes. Um, And um, it's not as important, but you should consider um, suggested imaging protocols for these patients when to start surveillance of patients who are high risk for developing renal cell carcinoma. Um, And so uh, I thought this was an interesting table. Finally, I'm going to wrap it up pretty quickly. Um, you know, biomarkers in renal cell carcinoma, um, none, none of the guidelines uh, recommend um, use of biomarkers to track surveillance, but obviously in many of our can- cancers, uh, where we have, uh, you know, genetic testing to try to predict who's going to relapse and trying to guide Patients who might not be a good candidates for active surveillance or patients who might be good candidates for adjuvant radiation treatment. And we're getting there in terms of renal developed, previously validating stage one to three patients and recently validated in the s trial, which was another adjuvant trial in renal cell carcinoma that demonstrated a benefit in terms of disease-free survival for patients treated with Tsunidim or Seraphim. This recurred score um, is an independent predictor of relapse. Um, so if you think about stage one patients, um, there's low risk and high risk patients within stage one, independent of stage uh, T1, T, T1A, T1B, independent of... And, and they looked at 11 different genes that are responsible for immune response, vascular normalization, cell growth, division, inflammation, all things that are important in renal cell carcinoma. And they found that lower expression of these, uh, of immune response or vascular normalization genes was associated with higher risk of recurrence. And so you can see where this might um, uh, be beneficial, particularly for high-risk patients, um, as we think more about who's going to benefit from um, adjuvant treatments. Um, uh, You know, obviously the adjuvant treatment debate is still, well, the adjuvant treatment is still being debated um, with uh, Assure and STRAC uh, different findings. Uh, but there certainly seems to be some patients who are going to benefit, and we might be able to use biomarkers such as this in determining a little more closely. Um, that's pretty much it. Um, you know, I, I hope that uh, you gained some knowledge about renal cell carcinoma and follow up, but I hope that. Um, you know, this made you think more about just surveillance in general. Um, you know, there's a lot of interesting um, renal cell carcinoma, and we should think about, um, you know, the burden of tr- of uh, surveillance on our patients, um, radiation exposure, um, and um, trying to um, stratify patients' pilot
1: Thanks so much again, Dr. and That was a really, really great talk. Lots of high yield info in there for boards, for in-service. There's always a question from the um, formerly renal cell follow-up guidelines, now, renal cell, now kidney cancer guidelines um, on the boards, on the in-service. So that was really a great review. Uh, also with regard to all the genetic syndromes that always comes up as well. And it's good to think about uh, surveillance protocols. Um, kind of piggybacking off of our last lecture, um, you know, cancer surveillance seems like one of those things that is actually absolutely perfect for telemedicine. Have you been doing telemedicine at Lenox Hill, and and have you
0: kind of thought about cancer surveillance and telemedicine at all? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, uh, I, I would say obviously, you know, our clinics were shut down for a couple of months, um, and patients are anxious. Uh, they want to know their pSA they want to know what 's going on with their uh, kidney uh, certainly for prostate cancer, almost all of our surveillance is now done by via telemedicine um, you know obviously in prostate cancer that 's an easy one um, you know there 's not really you 're not going to do a DRE in patients who have had post prostatectomy um, you know really following their uh, quality of life and their pSA and so uh, that has uh, become almost 100 percent telemedicine, um, and in renal cell carcinoma, often I'll do the imaging, uh, and we'll review the imaging, um, and uh, and you know that a lot of a lot of the surveillance has gone to telemedicine, as as you mentioned. Um, yeah, I mean,
1: one of the big things that you were talking about was the the cost savings of uh, you know ultrasound versus CT versus MRI, but when you factor in, um, Dr. Finkelstein was talking about all the kind of unmeasurable costs, the day off from work, the driving into the city, uh, the parking, the wasting your time in the waiting room. When you factor in all those costs, you know, even though the cost to the healthcare system may be less, the cost to the actual patient or the cost that the patient sees, um, you know, maybe way more convenient for them to get an MRI done locally and save all of that time. Yeah. Uh, You know, it might be something even
0: worth doing some research on or simulating some models, it seems like it makes total sense. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm a big fan of telemedicine. Uh, patients love it. Uh, they, uh, especially in these times, they enjoy seeing your face. <laughs> they enjoy seeing another person um, and the convenience. And they, and they really feel like, uh, you know, a lot safer in their homes. And they're, they're really appreciative of that. Uh, and they're also appreciative of uh, uh, doctors checking in on them. Um, and uh, you know, and we shouldn't obviously stop treating or following people for their cancer just because we can't see them in person. Um, and so, a lot of our clinics have gone to telemedicine. It's been a, it's been a big success. I, I would just, I mean, anecdotally, patients really enjoy it. Um, and so, uh, it's going to be here to stay in some in some form, um, even when things return back to normal. Um, you know, there's going to be some patients who just prefer this.
1: Uh, one question in the chat here from Dr. Ahmed. Um, do you change your surveillance protocol for papillary uh, renal cell carcinoma type 2 versus other types of renal cancer? Uh,
0: no, I don't. Uh, I don't have any uh, different... Um, I don't have a higher... Uh, you know, I, You know. they do have, as I mentioned, higher risk of abdominal recurrence um, for high-risk disease. Um, but for the stage 1 papillary type two, I don't change my um, surveillance regimen. Makes sense.
1: Yeah. I think getting a proper risk stratification, like you said, and assigning it um, and just making that a habit when we see our patients with kidney cancer, um, you know, that should just be part of our protocol.